MG is back and it's electric. The MG ZS EV. From just €28,995, the truly affordable, family-friendly electric range. Go to mg.ie and recharge your soul. Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. On November 9th, the leaders of Azerbaijan and Armenia signed a peace deal to end six weeks of fighting over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh, a landlocked mountainous area which is inside Azerbaijan but has a largely Armenian population. The new deal allows Azerbaijan to retain control of areas and gains that it's made during the conflict. More than a month on, continuing skirmishes have placed question marks over the durability of that ceasefire, which was brokered by Russia and Turkey. The most recent conflict was just one of several that have erupted since Azerbaijan and Armenia fought a war over Nagorno-Karabakh in the late 1980s and early 1990s. That war cost more than 30,000 lives and caused the displacement of roughly a million people, the majority of them Azeris. Now it is mainly ethnic Armenians who are fleeing their homes as Azerbaijan retakes control of territory lost in that initial war. But how did we get here in the first place? What made Nagorno-Karabakh the powder keg it became in the dying days of the Soviet Empire? And what are the regional and global implications beyond Nagorno-Karabakh itself? Those are just some of the questions I'll be putting now to Daniel Midlachlan, our correspondent in Eastern Europe, who's on the line. Dan, tell us a bit first about Nagorno-Karabakh. Where is it? How big is it? Who lives there? Well, as you mentioned there, it's a, a mountainous area in the South Caucasus, uh, with um, Armenia itself on one side to the west, Azerbaijan to the east. The rest of Azerbaijan, as you say, it is uh, officially a part of, uh, of Azeri territory. Iran to the south, it was part of the uh, an autonomous region within the Soviet Socialist Republic of Azerbaijan, but with um, a, a majority Armenian population. Towards the end of the 80s, around 1988, as the whole Soviet Union really started to started to shake with the perestroika and glasnost reforms of, of Mikhail Gorbachev, the the question of uh, uh, identity and to which which uh, republic Nagorno-Karabakh should belong really came to the surface again and and intensified in between Armenia and Azerbaijan and in Nagorno-Karabakh itself. And as the Soviet Union broke up in 1991, this became an even sharper question because the majority Armenian population in Nagorno-Karabakh said, well, uh, we no longer want to be part of an independent Azerbaijan. We want to go our own way and potentially join Armenia. This developed into a war during which the uh, the local Armenian population took control, full control of their region, backed by Armenia itself, fighting against Azeri forces in what was an extremely bitter conflict. As you mentioned, they're claiming about 30,000 lives, displacing hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps up to a million people. The Armenian population did manage to take control of Nagorno-Karabakh. There were attacks on Armenians living in other parts of Azerbaijan, um, forcing Armenians to flee to Armenia itself. And there were, uh, as you mentioned there, there was, there was a, a great outflow of, of, of Azeris from Nagorno-Karabakh and surrounding districts to safer places inside Azerbaijan. So this left a very deep wound in Azeri society and in Azeri politics. And it became the defending Nagorno-Karabakh and and. Uh, maintaining this Armenian Republic 
became a, a, a crucial central part of post-Soviet Armenian politics as well. And how long, Dan, did that war last and what finally brought it to an end? Uh, it lasted for about uh, six years, ended in around 94, um, when a kind of a, 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 a tentative truce was, was agreed. Uh, Russia was involved in brokering that. Russia has tried and tried at that time as well to um, maintain decent relations with both Azerbaijan and Armenia. At that time, it was closer to Armenia and provided support, to, some support to Armenia during that conflict. But though the fighting settled down, no peace deal was signed and it became one of several of what, what were known and what are known as frozen conflicts around the former Soviet Union. They became areas in the former Soviet Union of uh, unresolved conflicts in which Russia played a role as sometimes a peacekeeper, sometimes a broker. But occasionally over time, as regards all those conflicts, including Nagorno-Karabakh, they would flare up again. And this was the case with Nagorno-Karabakh. Every few years there was an upsurge in fighting. There were continually... um, uh, claims from both sides that the other, that the uh, the uh, the enemy, as they saw it and they see it, was uh, provoking uh, a renewed start to fighting. There was sniper fire across the front line. There were explosions in in areas around the front line, and it was never resolved. Uh, and what we saw earlier this year, uh, some of the most serious clashes that we've seen since the 1990s, and then from the end of September, we had this very dramatic surge in fighting, which is by far the most intense uh, set of clashes that we've seen since the 90s, which, uh, which lasted for about six weeks until, until that, that deal that you mentioned early in November. And I'll ask you a bit more about that most recent conflict in a moment, Dan. Um, but just then, to go back to that period, say after 1994, when the initial war finished um, and things continued from there and there was this occasional outbreak and so on, who, who was running Nagorno-Karabakh in that time? Was it run independently by an ethnic Armenian uh, administration or did Armenia proper have a role in, in the running of the of the enclave? There, there was an, and there still is an ethnic Armenian uh, administration, separatist administration in Nagorno-Karabakh that ran the region's affairs. Um, they set up, created kind of democratic institutions, which sometimes actually worked quite well. There were there were elections there, which appeared to be, observers said, reasonably free and fair um, compared to other parts of the former Soviet Union. And particularly considering this was a completely unrecognized and is an unrecognized um, separatist republic. But of course, Armenia played a huge role in propping it up in, in all senses. It provided security support, it uh, provided uh, political and diplomatic backing, and it provided uh, a huge amount of financial support. The Armenian diaspora, which is uh, very large in Western Europe and the United States in particular, uh, would have a fundraising drive every year to provide money for Nagorno-Karabakh to to help it along, to help uh, develop infrastructure and so on. So so the there was a local administration and still is running a kind of, of rump Nagorno-Karabakh now in areas still that it still controls. Um, but uh, connections with Armenia were as close as you could imagine. I mean, that Armenia was the was the the lifeline for Nagorno-Karabakh. Most of its uh, imports came in from there. Most of the goods and supplies that it needed came in from from Armenia proper. Um, uh, even though even Armenia did not recognise the independence of Nagorno-Karabakh and did not go as far as 
trying to unify Nagorno-Karabakh with the rest of Armenia. It's fair to say that without Armenian support, without the, the support of the country and Armenians abroad, Nagorno-Karabakh could not have survived the last 25 years or so as a semi or a pseudo-independent uh, unrecognized republic. And have, have Azerbaijan and Armenia been talking to each other about the status of the enclave, you know, over those years, over that uh, period up to the recent conflict? Uh, talks haven't really made any progress at all because the, their positions are, are really diametrically opposed on this. As I mentioned, talking about the war back in the 90s, um, what happened was, was this issue of Nagorno-Karabakh became absolutely central to politics in both countries. In Azerbaijan, the only thing that, uh, that was, that was the, or, the, or the, the, the strongest line that you always heard from um, the current president, Aliyev, and his father, who ran the country after the, the Soviet Union's collapse, was that we will reclaim Nagorno-Karabakh. That was the rallying cry that really unified the country. In uh, Armenia, uh, there was a, a similar phenomenon. The, the main rallying cry that united all political parties was we must never give up Karabakh. Karabakh or Artsakh, as it's called by the Armenians, uh, Artsakh should always be Armenian. So there wasn't really any middle ground for them to, to, to meet on and to discuss and to try and find compromise. However, there was a, an international mediation effort led by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and a group of nations that they called the Minsk Group. This was chaired by Russia, the United States and France. And they tried over these 25 years to, to try and find a process by which they could find, by which some compromise could be sought and at least uh, a resurgence in intense fighting could be avoided. But it di really didn't make much progress at all. If there was any area that was open for discussion, it was over um, a buffer zone that Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia created inside the rest of Azerbaijan, around Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and there was some discussion that maybe these areas could uh, go back from, from Armenian and Nagorno-Karabakh control back under uh, Azerbaijani control. But no agreement was reached on that. Um, and this is what really frustrated Azerbaijan over the years, that no progress was being made diplomatically, even though uh, there were several United Nations Security Council resolutions reaffirming the status of Nagorno-Karabakh as part, legally part of Azerbaijan, and uh, supporting all efforts, diplomatic efforts, to try and restore the territorial integrity of Azerbaijan. But these came to nothing on the ground. And so the status quo really um, uh, was in favor of Nagorno-Karabakh and, uh, and its Armenian administration and Armenia itself. And Azerbaijan got to a point where, as uh, President Aliyev says now, we realized that there was no diplomatic solution. There was no peaceful solution to this conflict, which would restore the territorial integrity of Azerbaijan. And we realized we had to move to, uh, to a military solution. Um, and that was the point that he says Azerbaijan reached um, earlier this year when uh, figuring out what next steps to take when it came to Nagorno-Karabakh. And that takes me to my next question, Dan. I was going to ask you what triggered the, the latest outbreak in September, but was it simply that, that the Azeris essentially ran out of patience? It seems to be that. I mean, that's certainly what, um, what Azerbaijan and its main ally, Turkey, say when they are justifying this, uh, this Azeri advance, which started in late September. Um, 
I mean, it's interesting to think back a couple of years when the current Armenian Prime Minister, Nikol Pashinyan, came to power. He's from, he's from a younger generation than previous Armenian leaders. He wasn't as closely connected to Nagorno-Karabakh as they were. And people expressed hopes that actually this could be someone who comes to power in Armenia without the baggage of the, of the conflict in the 90s. Maybe he could find some kind of compromise deal with Aliyev in Baku. And there were some initial signs that that there was a, a something of a thaw between the two leaders, that maybe Pashinyan would be able to open a new chapter in relations between the two countries. But then uh, that changed really quite dramatically last summer uh, when Pashinyan went to Nagorno-Karabakh and, and stated very clearly and very stridently that Armenia would never give up Nagorno-Karabakh. And he even talked about uniting the region with Armenia proper, which is something that even more um, nationalist leaders, you could say, who had, who, uh, who had led Armenia before him, they hadn't gone as far as that. And this was really inflammatory rhetoric as far as Azerbaijan was concerned. Then earlier this year in July, we saw uh, a series of clashes in the de facto border area, which claimed several Azeri lives, and an Azerbaijani general was killed in those clashes as well. Um, so again, tensions started to build up to this point in late September when um, whatever its exact calculations were, Azerbaijan and its ally Turkey decided that this was the time to move. So it's fair to say, Dan, just as a statement of fact, that the recent conflict was, it was deliberately started by Azerbaijan and with support from Turkey. It was a deliberate act rather than it wasn't one of those conflicts that just kind of accidentally flared up as sometimes tends to happen. Um, it's, I think it's, it's pretty much established now, uh, not only by facts on the ground, um, but by the statements of, of, of Azeri uh, officials subsequently that, and including Aliyev himself, that patience with a diplomatic process had run out. And Azerbaijan decided that the only way, and a perfectly, as, as, as they see it, legal and just way of reclaiming territory that is legally Baku's, was to take the next next step and go to um, and uh, and take um, and use military means. Um, and also, it's it's quite clear from the relative strengths of the two militaries that it certainly wasn't in the interests of the uh, the of the Nagorno Karabakh administration or Armenia to provoke a full scale conflict now, because as we saw from events on the battlefield uh, this autumn. The Azeri military massively outgunned the um, the Nagorno-Karabakh forces and any help that they were getting from Armenia itself. Just to recap, then on the ceasefire signed on November the November ninth, what were the terms of that ceasefire? So, as I mentioned, Azerbaijan made very significant gains on the ground during that those six weeks of fighting. It retook much of the the buffer area around Nagorno-Karabakh that we mentioned and areas inside Nagorno-Karabakh itself that it hadn't controlled since uh, since the, the start of the conflict back in the in the early 90s, even late 80s. Um, and the peace deal that was finally agreed on November 9th, coming into force the next day, cemented those gains on the ground. Not only that, it went a bit further and, and uh, obliged uh, Armenian forces and Nagorno-Karabakhi forces um, to leave certain areas... Um, that they'd controlled for those 25 years or so. Uh, as Azeri forces would move in and take control of them, um, 
the Azeri population of those uh, regions, uh, people that were driven out 25 years ago, should be allowed to return. Um, at the same time, uh, under the agreement, Armenians, uh, several tens of thousands of Armenians, it seemed, fled the area during the recent fighting. They should also be allowed to return to, um, uh, if they feel comfortable and safe to return. And uh, presiding over this uh, this situation, this this um, this agreement, will be about 2,000 Russian peacekeepers. They were deployed very quickly by Moscow. Uh, they are in place now. And uh, as kind of a, a concession to Turkey, I think, an agreement was reached between uh, Moscow and Ankara that a joint uh, monitoring uh, centre would be established, not in Nagorno-Karabakh itself, but in Azeri territory close to the region to, uh, to oversee the ceasefire, to check on any alleged violations. And this also gives Turkey uh, a chance to claim that uh, it had a role in, in resolving the conflict, in, in ending the fighting on the ground. And it also gives some reassurance to, to Baku that its main ally will be part of, uh, of the process of, of overseeing this, uh, this, this ceasefire and, and related agreement going forward. So that's the situation we're in now. Um, Russia says that, a, that several thousand um, Armenians who left the region during the fighting have already returned. Azerbaijan says that it's preparing for um, its own uh, former residents of, of the regions that were under Armenian control for those 25 years to start returning soon. Um, but we still have some uncertainty on the ground. There are some areas uh, over which control is disputed, and we've seen skirmishes around those areas in recent days. Um, and in other areas that uh, either the Armenians or the Azeris control, they are trying to uh, shore up their positions to make sure they're not vulnerable to any future attack. So it's still quite a fluid situation on the ground. The Russian peacekeepers are there and they say, in general, the situation is calm. Um, but uh, it's still, the, the, the agreement still leaves many things unresolved. Um, Ultimately, the, the main question, I think, is the final status of Nagorno-Karabakh itself, because there is still this separatist ethnic Armenian administration based in the capital of the region, Stepanakert, which uh, still obviously resists any takeover from the Azeri state. Azerbaijan says it still uh, has the same demands that it always had, the control, uh, the, the return of full control over the region to Baku. Um, so we'll have to see. Baku says that this latest deal essentially resolves the crisis and it's just a, uh, resolves the conflict and it's just a matter of time before Azerbaijan restores full control over the region. Armenia insists that this is not a final peace deal. This is not an agreement about the status of Nagorno-Karabakh. This was just uh, a, really a truce to end the current fighting and to get back to, to the negotiating table. So, um, whereas it's much quieter on the ground now, uh, there's nothing like the kind of bloodshed or artillery fire or, or, or clashes on the scale that we saw this autumn, it is, a still, it is still a tense and somewhat uncertain situation. And just a question down on the role of Russia and Turkey here. I mean, it's clear that they both played a crucial part in bringing about the ceasefire. 
Are Russia and Turkey honest brokers just seeking to bring about stability in the region or are there strategic interests at play here? There are certainly strategic interests at play. Russia, of course, sees, you could say, all of the former Soviet Union as its backyard in which it wants to be the primary player. Um, we've seen in countries you know, like Ukraine and Belarus, uh, Russia clashing with the European Union and the West in terms of the direction those countries are taking. In Armenia and Azerbaijan, Russia definitely wants to remain the most influential foreign power. However, it is now rubbing up against a Turkey that is increasingly assertive across a, a very wide area. You know, we see Turkey and Russia on opposing sides in Libya, opposing sides in Syria, and also now in the South Caucasus. So this is very uncomfortable for, for Russia. It's a challenger from a, a, a major regional player. Um, and this recent conflict and Turkey's very prominent role from the start of the conflict, Turkey was absolutely clear that it was backing Azerbaijan to the hilt, whereas Russia's support... Uh, for Armenia was very equivocal. And lots of Armenians were hoping that Russia would come in and back Armenia to the same degree that Turkey was backing Azerbaijan. And it didn't happen, which for a while made Russia look weak in many eyes, in many eyes, uh, uh, in the eyes of many Armenians, Azeris, and observers of the region from across the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union and beyond. So that was a very uncomfortable time for uh, for the Kremlin, I think. But when it came down to it, and actually stepping in and taking the lead in getting the peace deal signed uh, in early November, Russia, I think, salvaged what it could from um, from uh, its uh, the options that were in front of it at the time. It played a relatively weak hand at that point pretty well in terms of getting peacekeepers on the ground uh, making sure that Turkish troops will not be stationed in Nagorno-Karabakh. That was a big thing for Russia and for Armenia, I think. Um, but what it does mean going forward is that Turkey is quite clearly now a major player in uh, Azerbaijan and um, therefore in the wider South Caucasus region. It brings this this Turkish-Russian rivalry across a very wide area into the former Soviet Union very, very distinctly. Um, and it remains to be seen, obviously, over time, how this will play out. At the moment, Russia and Turkey are being quite cautious with each other. They are praising each other for stepping in and resolving the, the conflict in a constructive way uh, at a time when the European Union, NATO and the United States were completely sidelined. They didn't play any role in this. So Putin and Erdogan, being two strongmen who have, uh, to put it mildly, uh, difficulties in their relations with the European Union and the United States, they are quite happy to kind of stand together at this point and say, look, we sorted out a conflict without you to the West. We didn't need you to sort this out. Um, you don't have to uh, play the role of the, the world's policeman. You don't have to lecture us about how to end conflicts, about human rights, about democracy and other issues. We can deal with our own affairs and affairs in our own region ourselves without having to bring you in and get you involved. So at the moment, they are cooperating on this. But of course, as time goes on, we'll see how that develops. Um, Russia is, has to tread a very fine line, I think, 
in this conflict and, and, and in its role as, as broker now, chief broker between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, Azerbaijan could come to see Russia as the force preventing it from retaking the rest of Nagorno-Karabakh. And uh, that could cause tension between Baku and Moscow. Um, Armenia could end up seeing Russia as the force that is, a, that is not protecting Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh from Azeri aggression. So Russia has wedged itself in there between Armenia and Azerbaijan. It's made sure that it remains uh, the, the main player, I think, despite Turkey's ambitions in the region. But it also is in a delicate spot going forward and it will have to play uh, a very subtle and careful game to balance its relations between Yerevan, Baku, Ankara uh, in the future over the, the future months and years. And so, Dan, the regional implications are, are clear. You've just outlined them there. But just to come back to something you touched on a few moments ago, the reactions back home in, in both the main protagonists involved, Azerbaijan and Armenia, very contrasting responses. Can you maybe just tell us something more about those? Yes, well, in, in Azerbaijan, it's, it's uh, you know, a huge uh, boon for President Aliyev. Um, he's, an auto, he's an autocrat who doesn't... Uh, uh, tolerate any real criticism or, or um, a free press or uh, a free opposition to challenge him. But he has fa- he did face criticism earlier this summer, which is very unusual for Azerbaijan and for Aliyev, um, over his handling of, of Nagorno-Karabakh. He was seen as being possibly a little bit weak towards Armenia. This is another factor which perhaps uh, prompted him to make the military moves that he made at the end of September. So this is a, a great victory for him. Um, we saw, uh, I think it was about 10 days ago now, of a, a, a triumphalist, a very lavish military parade with Erdogan in attendance as the guest of honour in Baku. Um, Aliyev basically hailing this as a, as a great day in the history of, as a, as a great a chapter in, in Azeri history and um, a major stepping stone to Azerbaijan retaking full control of Nagorno-Karabakh. So it's a, it's a great time for Aliyev and also for, um, for Erdogan. Um, Turkish officials have repeated again and again during this conflict that in relations with Azerbaijan, they are guided by the motto, uh, two states, one nation. So, uh, you know, Erdogan sometimes called a neo-Ottoman and he wants to project Turkish power well beyond Turkey's borders. Um, and he is, is uh, uh, proclaiming this as a, as, as a victory for the, the Turkic people more broadly, I think, um, against the Armenians. In Armenia, it's been uh, seen as a disaster, uh, and it's certainly a disaster for Pashinyan, the government of Pashinyan. Um, he says that he agreed to the terms of this, uh, this ceasefire deal because he saw that the, the military situation was disastrous and that if he, he didn't sign the deal when he did in early November, it would have meant the very swift loss of the rest of Nagorno-Karabakh and the loss of, of maybe thousands more Armenian troops. Um, but of course, as I mentioned, this, uh, uh, the status of Nagorno-Karabakh being the central 
uh, driving force really for Armenian politics in the last 25 years, the one topic around which all uh, Armenians were united, that we can't lose Nagorno-Karabakh, um, this has been a huge blow to, to his government. There have been big protests in Yerevan, which are continuing almost every day. Um, 16, I think, 16 or 17 opposition parties have got together, signed a manifesto demanding the resignation of the government, demanding snap elections. They're now putting forward a joint candidate to replace Pashinyan in what would be, um, as, they, as they term it, a national unity government, which would prepare for and oversee snap elections in Armenia. And so um, Pashinyan's in a very precarious position at the moment. Um, he says he won't step down in the face of, of street protests. He hasn't completely ruled out um, early elections, but he says that the current government that he runs has to basically stabilize Armenia at this time. He's accused his political opponents of trying to make capital out of this, trying to exploit the situation. And he says that these uh, opposition parties that have banded together against him are being manipulated and controlled essentially by his predecessors, uh, people who formerly ran Armenia and whose corruption and incompetence essentially meant that uh, left Armenia's military in the parlous situation that it was in, uh, leading in, leading up to the, the the recent clashes. Because he came to power then as part of a popular uprising in the first place, isn't that isn't that correct? Yes, Pashinyan came to power uh, a couple of years ago on the back of of, of street protests, peaceful street protests against um, the uh, the corruption that was that has really um, plagued Armenia since. Uh, it gained independence at the end of the Soviet Union. Um, so he was a new face in, in politics, a former journalist um, promising to clean out corruption, get rid of the old guard, and bring um, a new, more liberal, uh, cleaner uh, approach to politics, really. New ideas, um, a, a, perhaps a, a closer relationship with the West as well, and potentially um, a more distant relationship from Russia. Um, that's also potentially a factor in in um, in why Russia didn't come and help the Pashinyan government more strongly during the recent conflict. People have accused Pashinyan of destroying relations with Russia and leaving um, Armenia vulnerable to this new powerful alliance of Azerbaijan and Turkey. So he's now in a very vulnerable position. Um, his uh, he's not necessarily, he doesn't necessarily have many friends in Russia, um, and he's facing big street protests, and on the key issue that has unified the nation for all these years, he is seen to have failed. So he's facing a very uncertain time, um, and we will see how things play out for him now uh, over, over the next few weeks. Okay, Dan, an excellent overview as always. Thanks for that. And that's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.